Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Good morning, church family. We are one week away from Easter. Is that exciting? Yeah, that's pretty good. I think it's a pretty special time of year. You know, we get hyped up about Christmas. I think we should probably get hyped up about Easter because the reason there is a Christmas is to lead to the cross, and that's why we celebrate Easter. You can't have one without the other, so I think we should be excited. This is a big celebration in our church family, in Christianity this time of year. It's a great opportunity to see our community connect with the thoughts of what Christmas is all about. So there's great opportunities in this season. I'm excited about that. So today I want to cover four chapters of the Gospel of John. Can we do it? Uh, John packs actually five chapters of narrative, of storyline, into one night. We're going to cover four of them. We're going to cover the Last Supper in the upper room, the conversation that followed, and then as they left the upper room, traveled across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, where they typically spent the night. We're going to chat about some of the highlights of that conversation, because it covers four chapters of Scripture. Um, I've been making some big promises up here that I would really like to keep about how we're going to make it through the Gospel of John. And there's a lot of narrative that takes place in these last number of chapters, and we're, we're going to cover the highlights of the narrative. We're not going to get into every verse, uh, but we're going to see where we can make it to by next Sunday. Because next Sunday, we want to look at John chapter 21, the final chapter. So we've got some ground to cover between now, Good Friday, and then leading into Easter Sunday. I want to talk about a troubled heart today. I get this picture of a pool of water, and it's still, it's at peace, it's calm, there's no waves, there's no ripples, and in that pool of water, you can see a clear reflection of the creator. And then I get, a, I get this picture of the enemy, like a, a little kid throwing rocks into the water, and it's agitating the water, and there's all these ripples and waves and splashes, and you can no longer see the reflection of the creator in the pool of the water. A troubled heart. Does your heart feel troubled today? I was thinking about that second song, King of My Heart, and it talks about how God is good. He's never going to let me down. And I just took a moment to kind of look around the room. There's people here today with troubled hearts, heavy hearts. You know as well as I do that the pain that affects us most is seen in the ones who are closest to us. The pain of the people that we are closest to affects us deeply at the core of who we are, doesn't it? Broken trust, separation, betrayal, desertion. People ghosting you, leaving you on red is one of the new terms. That hurts, doesn't it? I want to talk about some of that today, some of the separation that was felt, some of the sufferings of the Savior on his way to the cross. We're going to be in John chapter 13 today. I want to talk about the struggle in the heart of the disciples as well. What, what did Jesus have to tell them before he went to the cross? What were his final words leading up to the cross? What promises did he leave with them? 
We're going to look at that. In John chapter 13, the disciples are celebrating the Passover meal in the upper room. And from other gospel accounts, maybe you remember how the preparation of this took place. Jesus said, go into the city. You will see a servant carrying a pitcher of water. Follow them to the house. Ask the owner of the house. He will show you a large upper room that's furnished. And look at that. There's the room. They prepare the meal. And they've arrived there to have the Passover meal. Jesus' last meal before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. His last supper with the disciples. So they've gathered together. John chapter 13. Look at verse 2. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I've titled this sermon today, Wash, Run, and Turn. It's a focus on the feet. The feet that were washed, the feet that ran, and the feet that flip-flopped and turned. So that's what we're going to talk about. Would you join me as we pray today before we look into God's Word? God, would you give us wisdom? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your Word today? Spirit of truth, lead us in your truth. Help us to see what you would have for us today in these four chapters of Scripture. Thank you for John, for the account of the last night that Jesus would spend before his crucifixion. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross willingly for us. We praise you for that today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory and humility. Uh, That's what Steve was talking about last week glory, a display of greatness, and Jesus displayed his greatness through humility, taking the form of a servant. The servant is not greater than his master. Jesus is exemplifying servant leadership to the disciples, and we see this as he's washing their feet. Now, we've spoken about this before, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here. You can go back through the YouTube archives if you want to see a full sermon on the Lord's table and what the washing of feet meant, but It was the lowest job for the lowest servant in the house. And the fact that Jesus ended up doing it after they were gathered for supper meant that the disciples didn't volunteer to do so. So Jesus stepped up where they refused to. He girded the towel about his waist and he went around to wash their feet. And the picture here, the disciples are laying down around this lower table on cushions. It probably doesn't look like da Vinci's painting of them all sitting in chairs on one side of the table. Why would you only sit on one side of the table? Um, So the disciples are laid with their feet spread out behind them, and Jesus is going around behind them on the outside of the circle, washing their feet. Just think, Jesus is doing the job of the lowest servant. Can you picture it? He gets to the feet of Judas, Yeah, these feet are going to be quick to run, to shed my blood, to betray me, to sell me out for 30 pieces of silver, the cost of a a slave in that day. He gets to Matthew's feet. Yeah, these feet are going to run away too. 
When Jesus gets to Peter, Peter argues with him and says, no, 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 Jesus, this is way beneath you. This is too humiliating and shameful for you. You will never wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no partnership with me. And, and Peter says, well, then wash all of me, Lord. Jesus explains it's only the feet that need washing, and he proceeds to wash Peter's feet. The feet that would be so quick to stand up for Jesus and swing the sword at the soldier, and then the feet that would run away, and then the feet that would come back, but then the feet that would deny the name of Jesus in front of the people questioning him, and he's flip-flopping back and forth. And Jesus is washing all of these feet of his disciples at his last meal. Focus on the feet. I just kept thinking about feet as I was preparing this. Feet are kind of gross, aren't they? <laughs> Consider the, the grace and mercy of Jesus. That though his friends would run, they would deny, they would betray... They would showcase some of the worst parts of themselves and their stories as found in the gospel. That he would wash their worst parts, their feet that would be walking around. And I don't need to explain what may have been on the road and in between their toes. And Jesus is going around washing the dirtiest parts of them. And they're about to showcase the, the worst parts of their character as, as they're being sanctified and becoming more like Jesus. But yet failing him time and time again in these tests. If you knew you were having your last meal, would you invite the people that you knew would betray you and desert you in your time of need and deny that they ever knew you? Would those be the people that you would invite to your last meal? Or would you opt for maybe your close friends and family? Consider the grace and mercy of Jesus. The characters he had around that table are symbolic of you and me. At our worst, he invited us in to share the meal, to wash our feet, to show us grace and mercy. But that's not all that Jesus knew. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and he's about to point that out. Je Jesus knew that Peter would deny him, and he's about to point that out with vivid detail. Jesus knew that all the disciples would run from him. The, the conversation on Jesus' knowledge is an interesting one, isn't it? And um, April read Philippians chapter 2, which is a beautiful passage that talks about this, this $3 theological term called the hypostatic union. If you want to throw that out and look really smart, but then you probably have to explain what it is. So let me explain what it is. The hypostatic union is the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. At Christmas time, when Jesus was born and placed in the manger, when he put on flesh God with us, Emmanuel with us, God put on humanity. And Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Well, how does that work? Philippians chapter 2. He gave up the independent use of his divine powers and abilities to subject himself willingly into humanity. So he was hungry. He had emotions. He was tired and he had to sleep. He was 100% man and 100% God. So at the same time as he's preparing the details for dinner that night with the disciples and preparing the room, he's also seated with the Father before time began, before the creation of the universe. Somehow 
Both of those things work together simultaneously. What did Jesus know and what didn't Jesus know? He points out another number of things that he knew were going to take place. Look at verse 3. John chapter 13 and verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. This is a key in the text. This is the framework by which we understand the rest of the conversation. The fact that Jesus was soon to die. He knew that. That's what the whole supper is about. A new covenant in my blood. He's going back to God. There's there's this element of separation. He's not going to be with the disciples that much longer. And that's a big part of the conversation. Jesus was soon to die. He's going to rise again. And then in a short time after the resurrection, he would ascend back to the Father. Judas is about to betray Jesus' way. Peter's about to deny that he ever knew him. The rest of the disciples will flee. There's this idea of separation. They're all being parted from one another. And it's a, it's a big part of the conversation. It's as if these final conversations before the arrest, Jesus is preparing the disciples for this time of separation and what that would mean. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments, he resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus is exemplifying servant leadership to his disciples, but knowing the context, it's more than just serving people. It's serving those people. Wait a second, you you want me to not only be kind, but to serve the person who stabbed me in the back and said those things about me on social media? You want me to care for and love and serve and pray for, pray blessing over the person who totally denied me, said they never knew me, forgot that I even existed? You want me to be kind to that person? Jesus is like, yeah. I want you to do the dirty work for that person in my name. Serve them, love them, show grace and mercy by serving those people. That includes you and me. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then Peter's using these hand signals and he's trying to motion to John over there like, can you ask him? Can you discreetly figure out who he's talking about? And John leans in and asks Jesus. And Jesus says, it's the one to whom I hand this bread after I dip it. He dips the bread and he hands it to Judas Iscariot. And then he says to Judas, what you have to do, go and do quickly. And Judas gets up and runs out. And Judas is on his way to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver to the religious leaders. And the disciples miss it. They have no idea what's going on. They don't understand They totally miss it. I want to draw your attention to the term troubled in verse 21. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. The Greek term is terasso. Kind of sounds like to wrestle. Uh, Properly, it means to put in motion, to agitate back and forth, to shake to and fro. Figuratively, it's to put into motion what needs to remain still, that still, quiet pool at ease, peaceful. It it means to trouble, to agitate, to cause inner perplexity, emotional agitation. It means to get stirred up, to get upset. 
We're doing a little renovation at our house. I say little, I thought it was little initially and it's becoming bigger and bigger, but it's the laundry room on our main level, which means we haven't had laundry for nine days. And we're doing all right, we're doing all right. But one of the settings on our washing machine is agitate. Do you have that setting? I don't really know how it works because I don't do a lot of laundry around our house and I really appreciate that my wife does a lot of that. But when it is set on agitate, I, I don't know if it has like poor balancing sensors or it doesn't get the load right or if we're just trying to wash too many clothes at once, but that thing literally shakes and you can feel the main floor of the house shake. And sometimes when we set it before we go to bed, we shut the door because it's loud and then we go upstairs to bed and the house is like shaking because that washing machine is agitating. And that's what that agitator means. It's got to shake those clothes up. It's got to pull them apart. There's got to be separation between the clothes. There's got to be this, this rubbing motion between the clothes so that the clothes can get clean. And through this cleaning process, through this cycle, we know that at the end, there will be clean clothes. So putting the clothes through that process and having the house shake because of it is worth it because in the end, we'll have clean clothes. So that's why we do laundries so that we have clean clothes, just in case you were wondering. You, you probably have an agitator setting on your washing machine, maybe. But it's the same word, agitate, as was used in John 11 when Jesus is outside the tomb of Lazarus. And he sees all the people weeping and it says he's deeply moved in his spirit, which we talked about meant snorting like a horse. He's angry at the fact that sin has caused this in his friend's life. But then it says he's troubled. That means to be agitated. In chapter 12, it says the same thing in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, agitated, shaken up. It's not at ease. I'm upset because Jesus is looking ahead at the coming suffering, agitated. Jesus is upset. He's uneasy. He's shaken. Why is that? It's because he knew his sufferings were at hand. He knew Judas was running to sell him out for those 30 pieces of silver. He knew Peter would deny. He knew the disciples would flee. He knew the arrest, the trial, the pain, the shame, the cross. He knew that on the cross, he would say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling that separation from the Father as he bore the weight of sin on the cross in our place. That's why Jesus is uneasy. We have this picture of Jesus' humanity and suffering Aren't you glad that you don't know the trouble that's coming next week, next month, year down the road, the bad news that might be on the loom, the situation you wish hadn't happened? Aren't you glad you don't know that stuff is coming? Like, wouldn't that just wreck you? How would you be able to function if you knew all of the terrible things that are going to happen in your life from now until eternity? Jesus knew. It's part of his suffering as he goes to the cross. Look at verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glory him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It seems like an interesting time to talk about love and glory, doesn't it? 
Judas just ran out. He's on his way to sell Jesus out. This is how people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. That's not an easy kind of love. The context calls us to an unconditional love. Not a love between friends, not a, a brotherly love between family. It's this unconditional agape love that even when things are hard and when people hurt us, when we love in those times, that displays to the world the glory of God and shows the world that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. When everybody else cancels the other person or would just forget about them and move on with their life, you're the ones who stick it out in unconditional love even though that person hurts you. And that shows to the world that you are, in fact, my disciples. But he says again, in a little while, I will be leaving you. That's the context of this conversation. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. I like how he puts that in there. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Don't we want it right now? Don't we want the answer right now? I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I love how Jesus clarified, you will follow afterwards. Doesn't that give a broader perspective, a future hope, the glory that is to come? Doesn't that sound like Hebrews? For the joy that is set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of glory. For the joy that is set before him. Jesus wasn't just looking at the cross or the pain leading up to it or the trial or the arrest or the betrayal or the denial or the desertion. Jesus is looking past all those things to a future joy, a time afterwards when the disciples would follow again. Peter did deny. He denied three times, in fact, as Jesus prophesied. You can read about it in John 18. I would encourage you to do so. First, a servant girl asks if he's one of the disciples, and he denies to a little servant girl. And then the servants and officers around the fire ask him, and he denies. And then the last person, I totally forgot about this until I read it. The last person is a relative of Malchus, the soldier who Peter cut the ear off of, who asked Peter, hey, didn't I see you in the garden when my cousin got his ear chopped off? Weren't you there? Peter's like, oh no, I did that. That was my sword. And Peter denies again three times. And then the rooster crows. But Jesus knows there's a time coming when Peter would follow again. And that's what we're going to talk about on Easter Sunday, John chapter 21, the restoration of Peter, the breakfast on the beach. Isn't it a beautiful thought, you know, that we fail God time and time again? In fact, there's never been a point where we've reached the standard of the glory and perfection of God. And that's why Jesus had to die, so that we can approach God based on his performance and righteousness and perfection and sonship and not our own merit that Jesus would receive us that the father would receive us as his sons because of what Jesus did on the cross and he wouldn't hold our sin against us because Jesus paid the price for it on the cross he gave us our forgiveness 
and broke our chains. Even though we fail, we fall, we run, we deny, Jesus can look ahead and see that, Peter, no, you're going to follow again. There will be a time after this. In fact, maybe this will even strengthen your faith. John 14. Jesus repeatedly speaks of the fact that he's leaving very soon. And you've probably heard this read and preached on at funeral services. In my father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, wouldn't I have told you? I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I just, I got thinking about the connection between what Jesus says here at the start of John chapter 14 and what Jesus just commanded the disciples to do in preparing the upper room. Jesus is going to go prepare a room for them in his father's house. Jesus sent the disciples to follow the guy with the pitcher of water on his head and asked the master of the house if there's a room that they could use and prepare. Jesus willingly followed and obeyed the sending of the Father. The disciples willingly followed and obeyed the sending of Jesus. They enjoyed the meal in the upper room. When we arrive in heaven, the place that Jesus is preparing for us, we're going to enjoy this meal. Except we're not going to be eating the lamb that was slayed for the Passover meal. We're going to be eating with the lamb who was slayed to buy our forgiveness and freedom and so that we can be in heaven for all eternity with him. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm not going to drink this cup again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying to get them to lift their eyes. You know, I thought it was funny. I, I was focusing on the feet, and then I, I wrote down focusing on the feet. And a big part of this conversation is Jesus getting the disciples to stop focusing on their feet. Lift up your eyes. Yeah, you're going to go through some suffering in this moment. There's going to be some trials and persecutions that we're going to talk about in the upcoming chapters. But why don't you lift your eyes for the joy that is coming, for the fact that afterward you will follow again. You're not going to fall away. You're not going to abandon your faith. You're going to fail this test, yes, but there's going to be more opportunities to stand up for me in the future. Look at John 14 and verse 5. Thomas says to him, Lord, we still don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Verse 6. You should commit this to memory if you don't already have it. It's a beautiful verse. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to the Father is through the Son. But it's almost like that's not enough for Philip. Look at what he says in verse 8. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Can't, can't you hear the frustration in Jesus' words? You've been with me this long, Philip, and still you don't know. Let's go back and take a look at verse 1, chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. There's that same term again, agitate. 
believe in God, believe also in me, troubled. They're still sitting in the upper room around the Lord's table. They've enjoyed the meal. Now they're talking. Jesus is troubled in his spirit as he identifies Judas, his betrayer. Now he's calling out the trouble that's in the heart of the disciples as well. Do you know how hard it is to care for people who are hurting when you are hurting yourself? How many moms and dads out there went through COVID or went through one of the crazy flus or colds that was going around this season but still had to be parents at home to all your kids and you're sick and it's so hard to have grace and mercy for your child in their pain, isn't it? When you're the one in pain. And here's Jesus suffering leading up to the cross knowing the desertion and the failure of the disciples but yet he flips the conversation to focus on the troubled hearts of his disciples. Isn't that grace and mercy and empathy that though Jesus is about to bear the weight of sin for all history to the cross and all future to the cross on his body, he's about to sacrifice for it. He's concerned for his disciples and the trouble and the uneasiness in their hearts and in their spirits. Matthew Poole, a Bible commentator that I appreciate, he says, in this discourse, this conversation, Our Savior hath most applied himself to relieve his disciples upon their disturbances for their want of our Savior's bodily presence. They've been with Jesus for three years, right? About three years. They're with him day and night. They're watching him. They're learning from him. They're camping out in the Garden of Gethsemane next to him. They're sitting around the fire together. And what? You're leaving? You're just going to leave us, Jesus? And their souls are troubled. Their hearts are agitated. What do we do with this news? How do we function? What do we do tomorrow? We've been following Jesus for three years. What do we do next? Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is taking their troubled hearts upon himself. Believe in me. Jesus is taking their suffering to the cross. Jesus took your suffering to the cross. Those rocks that are following into the pool of your heart and causing all of that agitation and disturbance and uneasiness and lack of peace and rest, Jesus is taking those things to the cross. And here's his answer for his disciples. Look at verse 16. John 14 and verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because neither sees him or knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you, i.e. the day of Pentecost in Acts. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. I'm so excited to celebrate Easter next Sunday, aren't you? The fact that these disciples thought that all was lost, Jesus was gone, what do we do now? But Jesus lives, and he's with them. And this idea that he's going to send the spirit of truth, this other helper, to be with them forever and always. And he goes even further than that. Look at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you, 
while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Peace I leave with you. That's the opposite of a troubled heart, the agitated heart, the upset heart. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. There it is again. Neither let them be afraid. Troubled hearts. Jesus is teaching the disciples through a fire hose on this final night. After the supper, they're about to get up. They're about to cross the Kidron, go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's just pouring it all out to them because he knows his hour is at hand. There's the promise of the Holy Spirit, the one who will be with them and live inside of them. He will teach them. He will call them to remember. He will remind them of the peace that they have in Jesus. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Then turn to John 15. We've got to get moving along here. They all get up from the meal, and they start walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane, where they often spent the night. And there's this beautiful picture. We don't want to get too deep into it, but the Kidron Valley is where the blood of all the sacrificed Passover lambs would run. So as they're traveling to the garden, they're traveling over the blood of the lamb to the garden. And this beautiful picture, the fact that Jesus is the lamb of God slain, whose blood atones for our sins. And they're crossing through this valley. Jesus gives this picture of the vine and the branch in John chapter 15, remaining connected to him, united to him. It's the only way to bear fruit and have joy in your life. The disciples are struggling to reconcile this. Jesus, you're telling us you're leaving. You're separating from us. We're about to not be with you anymore. And you're telling us we need to be connected to you to produce fruit and have joy in our lives. How do we reconcile all this? Apart from me, you can do nothing, John 15 says. Jesus talks about the difficulty the disciples will have in the world. But again, he promises that the Father will send the helper, the Holy Spirit, so that in a dark world they can bear witness about Jesus. Look at John chapter 16, the final chapter we'll look at today. Verse 1. Jesus says, on the walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he would be arrested and betrayed, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus talks about how difficult it's going to be in a, in a world that doesn't know him for the disciples. To fall away means to abandon your faith, to totally give up on it and walk away. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that I, I failed yesterday and I fell into sin. It means to totally denounce and walk away from your faith. And Jesus says, I'm saying these things so that you don't do that. You won't fall away. You won't abandon your faith. He's not trying to keep them from hard times or doubt or frustration or pain. He knows that's part of it. Jesus has the bigger picture in mind that, that through it all, they wouldn't abandon their faith. It may seem like they're about to abandon Jesus, deny him, run from him, desert him, betray him. But Jesus knew the rest of the story. His feet weren't his focus. He was focused on, on what was to come. Jesus knew he could see all the times when they would boldly stand in faith but not alone, not in their own power. And Jesus says, I know you're sad in your hearts because I'm leaving. But look at verse seven. 
And this is so wild. I've got to say, this is like the verse that I got hung up on in this this sermon today. Verse 7. Just try and fathom this. Try and feel what these disciples would have felt as Jesus says, I'm going, and they're trying to reconcile all this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here's my big culminating thought for the sermon time today. Jesus is being separated from his disciples. Betrayal, denial, desertion. I think you've got that today. The disciples are about to be separated from Jesus. Arrest, trial, crucifixion, burial. Then the resurrection, then the ascension. Jesus is about to hang on the cross, bearing the weight of sin for all of history and future to come. And the Father forsakes the Son. He experiences that separation from the Father in the moment as he's bearing the weight of sin. And God can't look on sin in his presence. This whole idea of separation and and being pulled apart. Jesus says, it's better for you If I go away. How on earth is anything better than the physical bodily presence of Jesus walking the earth here with us today? How could anything be better than Jesus being in Nazareth right now? And we can have a live feed to what he's doing and saying right now. And Jesus is still walking on the earth today in bodily human form. Still teaching, still working miracles. Like, how is anything better than that? And Jesus says, this is better. If I go, I can send my spirit. We refer to ourselves as Christians, and the term Christian means little Christ. When we trust Christ as Savior, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, our seal until the day of redemption, the helper, the comforter, the guide, the paraclete to lead us in all truth, to give us the words to say, to convict us, to give us confidence, to give us power. So everywhere we go, we now carry the Spirit of God within us. So just think, Very practically, very basic about that. You have Jesus in human form on earth who never really traveled that far. He taught a ton of things. Just check out the end of the Gospel of John and what John has to say about all that Jesus said and did and how the world cannot even hold the books that would be written. He healed a ton of people. He worked miracles. He did a bunch of teaching. But he didn't reach everybody when he was here on earth, did he? Now we have the Spirit of God, and we go with the power of God to every corner of the earth. And today there are hundreds of millions of Christians who have the Spirit of God declaring the message of God in all the corners of the globe. And Jesus says, you might not get this now, but you need to understand that it's better for you if I go, then I can send my Spirit, and the Spirit will empower you Acts chapter 1, the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples. Look at what Jesus says the Spirit will do in verse 8. 
When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Conviction isn't like shame. It's not rubbing your nose in the sin. Conviction calls you to confession, which leads to repentance concerning sin, which leads to righteousness through our Savior's sacrifice because we acknowledge our sin, which prepares us for God's judgment. The Holy Spirit is the power by which the world is reached with the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as he walked this earth, he only reached so many people. But the Holy Spirit can move in and through God's people in a way that Jesus could not as he was submitting himself to humanity. Look at verse 13 of chapter 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is sent to accomplish the mission of Jesus as a guide. Leading Jesus' followers in his truth, for his glory. Verse 15 is a beautiful way in which the Trinity works together, the Father, Son, and Spirit in the mission of the gospel. I love how Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see the big picture, to see beyond the pain and the separation that is about to come. Three days down the road. (laughs) Of course, the disciples are struggling to rationalize all this. They're questioning among themselves. Verse 19, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this not what you're asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice because the enemy will thought he had won. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. Jesus uses this picture of a pregnant mother's labor. He's used it before. Go through all that pain. Why? Because the joy that is set before the mother, that this little baby, this little bundle of joy is about to arrive, that's why the mother is willing to go through it. Because of her love for the baby that is to come. Jesus is suffering through the coming separation and pain But his sights are set on a happy reunion afterwards. Let's finish with these verses. Verse 32 and 33. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me alone. But I'm not alone. The Father is with me. I've said these things to to you, that in me you may have peace. That's the opposite of that troubled heart. In this world, you will have tribulation or trouble. That's pressure being squeezed. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Isn't that the message of Easter? There's going to be trouble. 
But because of what I'm going to accomplish by overcoming the world, you will have peace. Peace in your hearts. Peace with God the Father. The Comforter who will bring peace. The Spirit of Christ. Jesus calls us to set our focus on the joy that is to come. The happy reunion that takes place after the cross that we're excited to get into next week. I'm, I'm going to close in prayer now. And I want to encourage you, we're not going to have time to dig through all of the, the scriptures between now and John chapter 21 next Sunday. I'd encourage you to read through that. Think about the sufferings of Christ, his trial, his arrest, his crucifixion, the whippings, the crown of thorns, our suffering Savior in our place. This Friday at our, our Good Friday service, we're going to go to the Lord's table the same table that we talked about in John chapter 13. We're going to spend some time considering the sufferings of our Savior, his broken body and his shed blood for us. I want to leave you with that thought. Would you join me in prayer as we close today? God, we thank you for who you are today. God, we pray in all the content that we covered from those four chapters that one thing would be clear, that nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. That even though you are not here in physical form with us as you were with the disciples, your spirit is here. And your spirit will remain with us forever. Not just with us, not just dwelling around us, but within us. Thank you, Jesus, that you give us the power. Thank you that you remind us of the truth that we've dug into. Thank you that you show us. You give us confidence. You give us your power. You give us the words to say. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your ministry in our lives and around the world. And how incredible it is that Jesus can say, it's to your advantage that I go so that I can send the comforter. Thank you, Jesus, that we have the Holy Spirit here today because of the blood of Christ, because of our faith in your Son, the only way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, remind us of these things as we go from this place. Thank you in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.